Well, today, brothers and sisters, we are finally moving past Exodus 32 through 34, which broadly dealt with the golden calf incident. I don't know how many times in the past few months I've said the phrase golden calf incident. Um, I could just, I'll just start calling it like the GCI. Um, But I'm glad I don't have to say it any longer because I've said it probably like a hundred times at this point. Um, We now begin a new section in the book of Exodus, which is really the final section of the book, namely chapters 35 through 40. However, although we technically have about six full chapters of material ahead of us, I plan, I I don't, (laughs) I know sometimes we make promises and don't keep them, I really do plan to finish all six of these chapters in two sermons total, this sermon and next week, Lord willing. The reason for this is because chapters 35 through 40 are largely a repetition of material already given in chapters 25 through 31, and very often that repetition is verbatim or near verbatim. In fact, if you look at the notes section of the order of service, I've put two passages of Scripture side by side just to kind of give you a flavor of, of how verbatim this repetition often is. So, for example, if you look at verse 2, the second verse on the left-hand column, chapter 26, it says, The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Well, if you look over on the right-hand side, verse 9, that second verse in that column, it says, The length of each uh, curtain was 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits, all the curtains were the same size. The only difference is shall be to were or was. Well, that's a small sampling of the kind of repetition that we have in chapters 35 through 40, and so we won't go through it again in the same way we did through the first time. Otherwise, I could just be preaching the same sermons I did back then. Nevertheless, these chapters are significant. They are given for a very important reason by God, as we shall see today. And although we don't need to repeat everything we have learned up to this point, yet we do want to ask, why would God inspire Moses to repeat so much of what has already gone before? What's the purpose of this repetition, and what can we learn from it today? As we shall see, it teaches us several very, very important things but particularly important things about the worship of God. That is the main thing we will look at today. We will, however, also briefly touch on something I have preached on a bit before. I do want to repeat it, and that is the willingness of the people to give of their possessions for the building of the tabernacle. We saw the original commandment given in chapter 25, verse 2, There God says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. In our passage, we see the actual giving of the commandment, the call going out to the people, and we see the people bringing in their offerings in a really marvelous way, and it is an exhortation for us as well, and I hope we'll see some very real-life application uh, that we can consider. So we will look at that briefly. Having said that, let's go ahead and dive into our text, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 35. 
I'm not really going to walk through this entire passage as I normally might, verse by verse, but I am still going to kind of follow the general flow of the passage. So we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 35. It says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Here we have a reminder of the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath. This actually constitutes the fourth and last time in the book of Exodus where the people are commanded to keep the Sabbath. They are first told in Exodus 16 when God gives them manna to eat. Then in chapter 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the actual fourth commandment is given. In chapter 31, after God tells Moses he has appointed Bezalel and Aholiab, the craftsman, and then lastly here at the outset of the construction of the tabernacle. At first glance, this too might seem like a superfluous repetition, Kind of random that it just sort of shows up here in the middle of discussion um, uh, of constructing the tabernacle. And yet, what we see every time that this is given, all four times, it has a specific purpose, and this instance is no different. For example, in the other occurrences, the Sabbath is often mentioned in connection with worship, and especially the tabernacle itself. We see this, of course, in this passage, which is the beginning of the construction of the tabernacle, but also in Exodus 31, where God appoints Bezalel and Aholiab. The purpose of this connection is partly because, while the tabernacle is the main place for the worship for Israel, for worship for Israel, the Sabbath day is the main time of worship for Israel, and so it is fitting that Sabbath and tabernacle go together and that there is a Sabbath commandment when discussing the tabernacle. Next, the Sabbath is also mentioned specifically at certain times or in certain circumstances where Israel might be tempted to not keep the Sabbath or where they might need certain amount of instructions so they know how to not violate it. For example, in Exodus 16, when God prepares Israel to collect manna from heaven, He really gives them specific instruction for how the gathering of manna should be done in such a way that it does not violate the Sabbath. They need a little extra instruction on the Sabbath there as well. That is probably also a purpose of the Lord in including it here and maybe in Exodus 31 as well. The Sabbath is again enjoined when the construction of the tabernacle is discussed, and it probably serves as a reminder to Israel that even though they have been given a mandate to build the tabernacle, that does not nullify the duty to observe Sabbath. One commentator writes, this reiteration of Sabbath teaching at this point in the sequence of events may have been to keep Israelites from violating the Sabbath in the construction of the tabernacle. It might have been assumed by the people and perhaps by even some of the priests that building something so holy as the tabernacle would trump any concern about breaking the Sabbath law. However, the sign of the covenant, the Sabbath, 
can never be denigrated even for so positive a purpose. I think that's probably also another reason why it's here. God is very wise in giving it, and so it's not superfluous. Moving on in verse 4, chapter 35. It says, Moses said to all the congregation, the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Here we see the actual call go out for contributions to the tabernacle. Notice that the command is not a basic command for all Israelites. Rather, it says in verse 5 that it goes to whoever is of a generous heart. Elsewhere, it speaks of whoever's heart is stirred. In verse 3 of, of chapter 36, it's described as a free will offering. Here, God could have commanded that all Israel give him all the gold, all the fabrics, and everything he needed, and yet he only does it by a free will offering. I think the reason is simple. God is clarifying, I don't need your gold. I don't need all the fancy things that you have. I'm not a needy God. I'm not a God that needs to be carried around like the pagan gods. You don't need to put food and give me all kinds of offerings that I can eat. I don't survive on the flesh of goats and rams. I don't need a house. I don't need your gold. It also says um, what's interesting is we, we see that although God doesn't command all, yet he also doesn't fall short in his contributions at all. Perhaps we might be worried if God is not going to command it, then how will God ever get enough, especially from hard-hearted Israel? After all, the majority of these people are not regenerate, so how will he get enough for his purposes? Again, we see our God is perfectly capable of stirring in enough people's hearts for his purposes. Look again at verse 2 of chapter 36. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone whose heart stirred him to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded. I think, I think the reason why it says they come to the ta- um, they leave their tasks is it was actually so much at that point, it was, it was probably an obstruction from building. It was like, this is distracting us. We need to go on our work. They keep bringing us so much stuff. Not only does God not need their gold, he doesn't need any of that, He's also perfectly capable of stirring in the hearts of his people to get whatever he needs for his purposes. He will accomplish it with them or without them. I think the reminder for us, brothers and sisters, 
God doesn't need our money. God can make money like that if he wanted to. Like the Federal Reserve, he just prints it out, just make it, right? God could make gold if he wanted to. God doesn't even need money to plant churches or anything like that. God could just make churches, just as, he's, as Christ said, um, God could make children of Abraham out of the stones. He doesn't need us to do it. But he invites us to partake of the work that he's doing. So also, God doesn't need the Israelites, but he invites them to be a partaker of this marvelous thing that he is doing. Let us be encouraged by this, brothers and sisters, to have such hearts, hearts that are stirred by the Lord, that give of our gold, not because God needs gold or because the work won't be done without us. The Great Commission will be finished whether you want to participate or not. Christ will build his church. The point is, do you want to be used by God in the building of it? And that's a treasure far more valuable than gold. That is an exhilarating joy that money can't buy, and that is something we should truly seek. It's interesting that our Baptist forebears saw the significance of this passage in Exodus 35 and its application for their own time. In fact, in the 1689 General Assembly, when they met, uh, the confession where our, uh, the assembly where our confession was adopted, they actually established a fund and they allude to Exodus 35. They also put it in references to footnotes as well when they discussed their efforts of cooperation together. They resolved that a public fund should be raised by a free will offering, that every person should communicate according to his ability and as the Lord shall make him willing and enlarge his heart. See all the allusions to the heart language and all that stuff? As for the purposes of the fund, two are given. First, to send ministers that are ordained or solemnly called to preach both in city and country where the gospel hath or hath not yet been preached and to visit the churches. Second, to assist those members that shall be found in any of the aforesaid churches that are disposed for study in attaining to the knowledge and understanding of the languages Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. In other words, the fund is for sending out ministers and for training current ministers or raising up new ones. I don't know uh, exactly when that fund ended. I don't think that fund lasted too long. I do know there is currently today a fund called the Particular Baptist Fund that was started in like 1717, and it's still been going really strong. Um, I think that's so cool. I would say, I hope, it is, uh, it is my hope that we in the Texas Association can one day begin uh, a similar fund or some, fo uh, some form of intentional um, cooperation, not just for purposes of fellowship, but also for the sending out of gospel ministers and church planting. And I know that there are other brothers of that mind as well. I would encourage you to pray for us, that the Lord would stir in our hearts those messengers who go, um, to, to such a place where we would consider and make that, make that a reality. And I would ask, I would remind you, God doesn't need us to accomplish his work. God's going to plant churches here in Texas with or without us. He doesn't need us, but oh, the joy of being involved in the work of Jesus Christ as he builds his church. 
And I would just encourage you, um, as that time comes, I, I, I have some plans. Um, not really, I'm, I'm just thinking and praying, I'm talking to people who are thinking and praying. But I would just encourage you, um, will you have such a heart as well? I hope we will. I think, I think you're, my heart just kind of salivates in thinking of, of what we might do together in the Lord. Well, continuing on now in verse 10, it says, Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Now, that is really all that I am going to read from the rest of this passage for the most part, because as I've said, pretty much everything after this is repetition. Here, we want to seek to answer those questions first posed in the introduction. Namely, what is the purpose of all this repetition and nearly verbatim repetition? First, we should say at the outset, we reject the higher critical notion that these two passages are perhaps from two different sources. Moses never wrote this. If Moses even existed, they might say. These were compiled after after um, maybe like 200 years before Christ or something like that. And the reason why these are, these are different is there are two different sources, and whoever compiled them tried to harmonize them. What you have is really an amalgamation. The Bible is really a product of actually different religious beliefs. Some worshiped Elohim, some worshiped Jehovah. We reject all that. <laughs> that's, that's bonkers. And this is the word of God. It's actually funny that in their scholarship, it's actually quite lazy intellectually. What I mean by that is everything at the end of the day is attributing everything to different sources. And there are all these schools of thought of like, well, I think this section comes from this source. And so, so much of higher criticism of Scripture is really looking just for confirmation of their theory. And so they actually kind of just always come to the same conclusions of different uh, sources instead of actually thinking there might be another reason for things like repetition. Maybe one person did write this and he actually knew what he was doing and it's not just everything collapses into different sources. First, it should be noted that although this material is almost a verbatim repetition, yet it is not a repetition of order. The tabernacle items listed in chapters 25 through 31 start with the ark and work their way outward in significance. This is not the order of the items mentioned in chapters 35 through 40. Again, a higher critic looks at that and sees it as confirmation of two different sources, right? Two different people wrote this. However, if you look past the surface and have a bit of uh, intellectual curiosity, it's not hard, actually, to see the reason why there's a different ordering of the material. In chapters 25 through 31, the tabernacle items are listed in order of their importance and particularly in the order of their holiness. So where do you start? The ark, where God appears, the holiest place. And then where do you move out? Well, the holy place. Well, then, then what do you do? You talk about the curtains. And then where? You move to the outer court and so on and so forth. But you start with what is most important. In chapters 35 through 40, however, the order is quickly seen to be that in which the items were actually constructed. 
And so it starts with tent curtains and the framework. One commentator explains, a modern analogy might be found in the difference between how a church might be described before being built and the order in which it actually would be built. If a church building committee were describing what they wanted their new church to be, they might well start by describing the sanctuary and then perhaps certain other interior rooms, then perhaps the general external appearance, what sort of steeple or not might be desired, furnishings, lighting, and other decor. But a builder could not build the church in that order. He would start with clearing the site, then pouring footings, and then a foundation, and then sills, then the framing. The building committee's ordering of its desires would be completely appropriate, but so would be the builder's ordering of the building process. It's very much the reason for that. And like I said, if you just actually study the material, it becomes clear that that's what is the case, which is why I said so much of higher scholarship is just, it's lazy. It's like, well, these are different sources. Well, maybe they're actually not dummies and they have a brain and it's one author, right? So part of the reason for the repetition is it's giving us the history of the construction, whereas chapters 25 through 31 explain to us the significance of the various items. Nevertheless, that is not the whole purpose of this repetition. After all, if God simply wanted to give us the order of construction, he could have done that in a much shorter fashion. And yet he goes into great detail to describe the construction of every single aspect and facet of the tabernacle. So what else is going on? Again, according to the commentator I've read, Doug Stewart, he says, speaking of, of, of the detail and precision, he says, that's actually the point. The precision is the point. Listen to what he says. This repetition pattern is a way of highlighting the importance of what is commanded and the precision with which it was obeyed. By implication, the things produced in obedience to the original command must be considered important. They were commanded in great detail and produced in rigorous complicity with the command. In other words, things over which such a great fuss has been made in the text can only be seen of paramount significance. Things neither to be ignored nor treated lightly nor taken for granted. This importance of precision, of obedience, is seen all throughout these chapters, but I would say especially in chapter 39. There, ten different times, the phrase is repeated, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Ten different times. This culminates in verse 32 of chapter 39. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses so they did. Again, this shows us that God is very precise in how he shall be worshipped. It is to be as he has commanded and not otherwise. This is not only because he is God and his word and commandments are final, but also because in his great wisdom, he knows our own tendency to corrupt the pure worship of God over time for our own vanity and vain purposes. Again, the same commentator says, 
the commandment fulfillment pattern was at least potentially preventative. The Israelites might well have degenerated into idolatry even more often than most of them did were it not for the undoubtable, unassailable clarity of the tabernacle instructions as conveyed by the degree of repetition. No Israelite who truly desired to please Yahweh and worship Him properly could ever claim to have been unaware of how to worship Him at one central location at the properly furnished house of divine design, not of human devising. As I said, brothers and sisters, this teaches us something very, very important about the worship of God. Namely, He is to be worshipped as He commands. Seems simple, but if we could only get that, we wouldn't have all these problems over church history. Israel wouldn't have all these problems. It's simple, but there's always a temptation to turn away from that. God is to be worshipped as He commands and not otherwise. This, of course, is known as the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship, which states that that which is not commanded is forbidden in worship. Listen carefully. That which is not commanded is forbidden. This is different from what is called the normative principle of worship, which argues that that which is not forbidden is permissible. But the Reformed historically have held to the regulative principle. Now, if you've been in Sunday school with us as we've been going through chapter 21, the liberty of conscience, you might think to yourself, well, okay, hold on, Pastor. I thought we say that whatever is not forbidden by God's word or not covered by it is lawful, right? That's what we discussed, and I did say that. After all, the confession says in chapter 21, God hath left the conscience free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So if something is really not mentioned in Scripture, it's a thing indifferent, and you have liberty to do it or not to do it. Is drinking beer commanded by God? No. Is it forbidden by God? No. Scripture neither forbids nor commands. Well, then you have liberty to lawfully drink to the glory of God. And that, pri that principle is biblical. Paul explains this in 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. However, Scripture, scripture is equally clear that when it comes to worship, worship, God is only to be worshipped as He is commanded and not otherwise. This too is stated by our confession of faith in the following chapter, chapter 22, which we shall, Lord willing, get into soon in Sunday school. It says in paragraph 1, the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. It's not enough that something is not forbidden. It must be prescribed. It must be commanded and joined. 
you might say, okay, well, what does that have to do then with the passage we just read in Paul, that everything is good and to be received with thanksgiving? Again, this principle, when it comes to worship, is biblical. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see that when you extemporize and worship, that's not a good thing. I think the classic case of this is Nadab in Abihu. There it says in that passage, they offer strange fire, but the meaning is really unauthorized fire, zarah. The same term can be used to describe people who are not uh, authorized to enter certain places. So like a person, uh, some translations say a layman, you're not a priest, you can't enter into a certain part of the tabernacle, you are not authorized. It doesn't really mean strange, like it's weird. I think sometimes we hear strange fire and we, we like think of them as having these really evil grins and, and they're doing very evil things. This is very pagan worship. I don't think that's necessarily what they were doing. If anything, I think what they did was more along the line of what Uzzah did. Remember Uzzah? They're bringing the ark of the Lord and it starts to, to, to tremble like it's going to fall. He puts his hand out to steady it. Normally, I guess, a noble intention, but also lacking the fear of God because it goes against his commandment. I think Nadab and Abihu did something like that. They weren't trying to be diabolical and evil and having evil grins. They tried to extemporize in God's worship, and God destroyed them. You might say, well, hold on, that's the Old Testament, Pastor. We're in the New Testament now. Yeah, but people says, or Paul says, when you eat of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that's why many were sick and some had even died. God takes his worship very, very seriously. Now, when I told my wife I would be preaching a little bit on the regulative principle, she said, oh, good, because the last time you preached on it, you really didn't go into much depth. And she said, and I specifically thought that. And I said, well, thanks for not telling me at the time, but keeping that hidden away in your heart to tell me now. Today, I won't be able to go into it in great detail at all. The reason being, a full discussion of the regulative principle and all of its intricacies is better suited to Sunday school. Because while it's a simple thing to say we only worship God as he has commanded, yet it is much more complicated to apply that in real life. And there are a whole host of other principles that are involved You must make the distinction between elements of worship and circumstances. You must discuss the importance of the light of nature and Christian prudence. You need to discuss the differences in technology, the differences uh, that we have today. The Bible doesn't command the use of microphones, so are we violating the regulative principle? Well, no, but the answer for that is much more complicated than it's forbidden if it's not commanded. And so, if anything, what I hope to do today is whet your appetite for Sunday school um, that we will come up soon. And it's actually, it makes sense that chapter 22 comes after 21. You discuss that God is the Lord of conscience, and then you talk about God's law in worship. So they go together quite well. I will, however, give a brief example of one issue to illustrate the regulative principle in our own day and this is the issue of ministerial robes, ministerial robes, sometimes just called the Genevan robe, a Genevan robe. Um, they did not originate in Geneva, but they were worn by ministers there. 
And I think people just think of Geneva and Calvin and as the New Jerusalem. So it's called the Genevan robe. Should pastors wear robes? Now, if you're a Baptist, you're probably going to say no. And you're right. If you're a Presbyterian, you might say yes and be very serious. And, and, and be also very serious about the regulative principle of worship. Right? However, while I do love my brothers who wear robes, I don't condemn their worship as totally defiled. I don't, I, don't, I don't think God's going to consume them right there in that moment. Like, I don't call them Nadab and Abihu. Nevertheless, I do think ministerial robes today are in conflict with the regulative principle. Now, our robed friends say that this is a matter of liberty. And indeed, there are certain matters of liberty in worship. As I said, it's not a simple matter. There are matters which require prudence. Okay, But that robes are a matter of liberty, I'm not convinced. They argue that it elevates the Word of God. It takes away from the preacher and any distraction of his clothes. I wonder to myself, is like Elton John your pastor? Like what kind of clothes is he wearing that you must cover him with a robe? Um, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek. But that's what they argue. It takes away from his clothes. They say it elevates and puts focus on the Word of God. One author writes, the robe aids the congregation in being reminded of what is taking place. It is the elevation of the Word of God. Okay, but my high Anglican church friends, when they begin their worship service, they carry the Bible up high in a big procession all the way down, and they say, because it elevates the importance of the Word of God. So is that okay? I'm sure my Presbyterian friends would say, absolutely not. So that's not very much a good reason for robes then, is it? Furthermore, the really pertinent question is, did God command any special kind of dress for ministers? No. We read nothing of Paul or Peter wearing special robes. They certainly dressed in a way that was fitting for a public assembly. They didn't show up in their PJs but we're not told that they wore some kind of distinctive ministerial garb. Furthermore, just from a practical perspective, if robes were truly necessary to keep our focus on the Word of God, to elevate the Word of God, if it's so important, wouldn't God have commanded it? In other words, if that was a true need, there was really a true benefit derived for the people of God, why would God not explicitly say so? The conclusion follows, it must not be necessary or really be all that important. Otherwise, he would have commanded it. He is wise and knows what we need. Well, they say, okay, but the reformers all wore robes in the pulpit. In fact, even today, they are called Genevan robes, as I said. In fact, I believe there's even a portrait of Benjamin Keach wearing a ministerial robe. So you have it right there. All the reformers wore robes, right? The problem with that is that the Genevan gown did not start out as a ministerial garment. In fact, it was kind of what professors wore when teaching. And many reformers were themselves scholars, and it was kind of normally what they wore throughout the work week. This is why even today in ceremonies, in graduation or maybe at a commencement, 
they basically wear what looks like a ministerial robe, right? It's because that's what professors wore at that time. Furthermore, it seems like that kind of a robe also functioned then almost as kind of a suit does now. It was fitting on solemn and public occasions. This is why even today, judges wear basically what looks like a ministerial robe. And even in England, they still wear wigs, which is very funny if you've ever seen that. It's a ceremonial tradition, but it originated during a time when those robes were common in public, and they weren't priestly per se. And so back then, I don't think it violated the regulative principle, but if the only reason given for it today for why we should is because of tradition, not the Word of God, that's not the regulative principle of worship. Furthermore, although the Reformers and many Puritans wore a robe when preaching, they also despised priestly Roman Catholic garments. They hated the surplice. It's called the surplice. If you've ever seen a picture of a Catholic priest in Mass, I think they only wear it during Mass. It's kind of a white, frilly, kind of looks like a dress. Um, um, that's a surplice. They would not wear that. In fact, the Puritans write again and again against things like that. Why? Because they're not instituted by the Word of God. And many were so serious, they went to prison for it. I don't know why they would, on the one hand, reject that and then turn and put some other kind of priestly garment on. I think it would have saved many Puritans a lot of time and effort and kept many of them out of prison to simply wear the surplus. Indeed, uh, interestingly, many of the reasons given for the surplus back then, I would say, are also given for the gown today. Was Paul, however, any less solemn? <coughs> I almost made it. almost made it. <coughs> Was Paul any less solemn in his preaching? No. Was Peter's audience on the day of Pentecost distracted by his clothes and not focused on the Word of God? No. So ultimately, while we love our brothers, I don't think that there's any good reason from the Word of God that can be given for it today. And therefore, if it's not commanded, it is forbidden. Now here you might say, that, that, that seems really straight. What's the big deal after all? Well, it's not terribly apparent right away. And the consequences at first are small. Indeed, you can wear a robe and still offer acceptable worship to God. You also open the door to the introduction of other things, however. And over time, the worship of God can acquire so many human accretions, it is no longer acceptable worship. This is indeed what happened by the time of the Reformation. And God, being not only our wise God, but our loving Father, has placed these restrictions on his worship for our own good. As I said, I hope that whets your appetite. There's a lot of things to look at and consider, and you, you don't want to just jump cavalierly into it. There's a lot of, it, it's very complicated. If I can leave you with one thing, I would say, make sure that in your heart, you you don't just worship according to how God has commanded outwardly, but you make sure that in your heart you esteem the statutes that God has given. You try not to add anything to them. You take them seriously, even the Sabbath. 
I know for myself, I was convicted. <clears throat> on the one hand, I work on the Sabbath. It's what I do, right? You're a priest. And I could point to where Jesus says, well, don't the priest blaspheme the Sabbath? And I could do a lot of things to justify my labors on the Sabbath. There are many ways, though, in which maybe if I was a bit more focused the week before, I could keep the Sabbath in a much greater way. And I think that that gets at the heart of the reason why the Sabbath is commanded. So even though they have the great work of tabernacle building, it does not nullify the Sabbath. I would encourage you, whether you are considering the Sabbath or any other means of worship, that you be sure that you have the proper heart attitude towards them. They're not mere suggestions. They're commandments of God, and He knows what is best for us. Amen? Let's pray. God, You are a good God. You are a good, kind Father. What look to us at times like strictures are loving protections. Loving protections, Lord, to keep your worship pure. Oh God, would you give us hearts, hearts that are zealous for your pure worship, hearts that desire to be sure that what we do is grounded in Scripture. I do pray, Lord, that you would bless our future time as we study chapter 22 of the Confession. You'd help us to understand and grasp and wrestle through all of the intricacies needed for that discussion. But more than that, Lord, I pray that you'd grant us a heart that loves your statutes and your commands and is zealous for them. I also ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts, um, generous hearts, hearts that desire to be involved in your work, that you might use us, Lord, for the building up of your kingdom. Oh, Lord, you don't need us. You will accomplish it with or without us. But, Father, we delight to be, we delighted to be instruments in your hands as your children. Would you use us mightily for the building up of your kingdom? We ask these things in the name of Jesus.